Welcome to the last 8% morning. This is JP Palu Fry. It is so great to be with you this morning. This is Finding Our Voice Week, where we are reflecting and pausing on the international story that is the response to the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis by police, and the long history of systemic racial oppression. In today's session, our third in the series, we discuss how to take action in two specific ways, by having difficult conversations and by engaging in difficult actions. out and walking, feeling our feet on the ground. If you're new to the last 8% morning, we follow a specific structure of B-I-G, where we pay attention to our belly and our body. We think of an idea of the day, or I drop an idea of the day, that's the I, or we do identity on other episodes, and then we pick one of two Gs, gratitude or goals. Today, because this is a really important session where there is lots to cover, we are going to go straight into the idea of the day. And I will pause every now and then to have us check in with our body. So right now, just as you're walking, feeling your feet contact the ground, feel your belly rise and fall, standing tall, looking around, feeling grateful to be alive. And tuning now into listening, mindfulness of listening and thinking and reflecting. So what have we learned so far? In session one of Finding Our Voice Week, we learned the importance of understanding the difference between being a non-racist and being an anti-racist. In session two of this week, we talked about what racism is and how a misunderstanding of it can lead to people getting defensive and stopping the important conversations and actions that need to take place in order for real change to occur. So how can we take action because this whole week we are building up to, okay, what can we do to make a difference? Because we're last eight percenters, which means we see our challenges as opportunity to transform ourselves and the world around us. So what are the concrete steps that we can take to find our voice and help make change happen? Two things. Engage in difficult conversations, what we call last eight percent conversations. Why do we need to do that? We need to do that because change is slow. We need to 
understand that many people might not even understand or believe that there is a difference between individual acts and systemic racism, which there most obviously is when you look at the data. So that's number one. We need to engage in difficult conversations. Last 8% conversations. Number two, we need to engage in difficult actions. And there are things that we can do to use our platform. You know, each of us have a platform. Each of us have influence. How can we use it to make change happen, even in the smallest ways? Because if we all do something, it adds up. That's what we're seeing in the streets right now in the U.S. and around the world. And I'm going to suggest that you pick just one of a number of things available to you that I'm going to describe here. Just one. Just take action on one. It's really important that we take some action. Helen Keller said, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. So this is our opportunity to transform ourselves and society. So to be effective at a last 8% conversation, We need to do a couple of things. Number one, prepare ourselves. There will be strong emotions that'll be part of this conversation. We need to be ready for it. We need to manage our own emotions so that we can think straight as we deal with the defensiveness that will crop up. And we know this from the podcast. We know this from our work at IWHP. In order for us to be at our best, we need to grow our emotional intelligence. So if we are a person of color, we might feel emotions of anger and fear for our loved ones or overwhelm, frustration, even exhaustion. You know, here we go again. By the way, there might even be some feeling of hope. Um, I've certainly seen that, um, that possibly systemic change might happen. If we are not a person of color, we might be feeling emotions of anger of what we saw in Minneapolis, sadness about the state of things, or fear about speaking out in the right way. We might even be struggling to understand the systemic side of racism and the need to investigate any defensiveness we might feel. Maybe we have a feeling like we just wish it would go away because it makes us feel uncomfortable. In this instance, We need to admit to ourselves whatever it is that we feel. We need to be open to how we're feeling. Because the truth is, is that if we are not, then we will close down. And so if we have anxiety about thinking about and having a conversation about this topic, let's, let's examine it like we do in, you know, managing emotions, right? If we can label it. This is a powerful way to not let emotions stop us. And by the way, when we're actually talking with someone to to actually admit it and say, I'm feeling anxious about this topic or this conversation. I I don't want to mess it up. That's actually a really powerful way to disarm the other person, quite frankly. But it's a really important way for us to be able to stay in there and not avoid and run away. By the way, if you're looking for a way to learn, you know, how to manage your emotions, uh, the podcast episode on ETA is a great place to start. Um, It'll give you some really good tools to label 
and to manage your emotions. Of course, we've got some great courses at IHP that we'd love for you to take. But anyway, let's go back to our belly and our body. Standing tall, feeling our feet on the ground, our belly rising and falling. Looking around, feeling grateful. Feeling grateful to be able to breathe. Having compassion for those who, for whatever reason, are challenged to breathe. Okay. So, in order to have a last 8%, we need to prepare, mainly ourselves. And then number two, we need to start by getting to their side of the bridge. What do I mean by that? Many times when we start a, what we perceive is going to be a difficult conversation, we get anxious and we feel the pressure. And so we get ourselves ready of what we're going to say. And then we say it and we start from our side of the bridge. And that is not nearly as effective as if we say, no, I'm going to walk over to their side of the bridge and build this bridge step by step backward towards my side. I'm going to try to understand their point of view. And this is what empathy is. Try to understand what they might be experiencing. And it starts with a willingness to be open to how other, others might be experiencing the same situation from a different point of view. So you can ask yourself, who are you speaking with? What was their programming? How were they raised? What did their culture teach them? And part of it might be just that they're not even aware of the systemic racism. Again, I don't think a lot of people really understand this. So as we, we start the bridge from the other side, building it backward, and we're listening for three types of information as we're talking to them. Facts, feelings, and values. So we're just trying to understand what are the facts of what they're saying in their argument or in, their dis, in the discussion. What are their feelings about what they're saying? And then what are their values? So this is just a handy way to think, okay, as we're hearing the information, can I listen for facts, feelings, and values? And now look, there's a much longer, you know, explanation of this bridge. Um, and again, either our courses might be a good place to look. I'm sure I haven't yet, but I will have a podcast specific to it. But just for time, I can't get into everything. But here's the point. This particular conversation that you will be having, it might be part of a longer conversation. So you might want to be careful and to see that you don't need to be right. In a sense, you're planting a seed. And so you want to start from their side of the bridge, build empathy, build it step by step backwards towards you. Listen, right? You want to really have a willingness to listen to what they're saying. Ask questions. And you want to validate the three pieces of information, facts, feelings, and values. And what's the core message, right, that you want to impart? Well, after you understand where they're coming from, and if they're open, I think the core message you want to communicate is simply the misunderstanding that most people have about what racism is. That it's not just individual acts, but a system that many people who are not of color might miss because they are not subject to it. Stick to this one point. Make it simple. I think this is the most powerful thing you can do. 
Okay, so that's engaging in last 8% conversations, difficult conversations. Now we want to turn to engaging in difficult actions. So what can we do with difficult actions? Well, I'm going to give you a lot, but I'm going to start with one. When you hear language that is racist or is a microaggression, call it out. When you hear it, when you see it, or as I'll describe, when you use it. So let me describe recently um, in a letter that I was sending to our company, I used the term black swan to describe the pandemic. And you might know the book. Um, I was referencing this book by the same title. And on the surface, you might think, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the name of the book. But the truth is, is that this is part of everyday language that can be more problematic than we realize. Let me, let me make the case. And by the way, I wouldn't know this unless somebody in my organization pulled me aside and said, hey, JP, you might not want to use black swan. And then they described to me why. So here's why. Black swan is similar to other terms that we use that implies to people of color that their color is related to, think about it, extortion, blackmail, or disrepute, black mark, or rejection, blackball, to blackball someone, or banishment, to be on the blacklist, impurity, not the driven snow, illicitness, black market. This language casts aspersion on blackness or darkness that can injure, even if it's not our intention. It was clearly not my intention. And sometimes we just don't know, and that's okay. Can we be open? And by the way, we need to educate ourselves, but we're not going to get it right. Can we be open when someone points it out to us? That's also being a last eight percenter. You know, can we be open when someone gives us feedback that doesn't feel good? So we need to be more mindful. And I need to be more careful. And I'm so grateful to my colleague who said, hey, JP, I'm not sure about this. And, you know, she really opened my mind. And this is where we need to be truly open and constantly learning. We need to be aggressive learners. And there's so many other examples of how um, embedded white supremacy is in our language, in our culture, in our systems, in ways we're not aware of. And so calling out others and ourselves is the first step in working to undo it. And of course, as you now know, you know, if we can get skilled in having these last 8% conversations, we will feel more confident walking into them. It won't cause us so much anxiety. Okay, so how, what are the actions we can take to call out language when we hear it or see it in others and to be open if somebody points it out in us? Number two, we need to support the groups who are working for anti-racism. You know, look up the community organizations in your neighborhood. How can you support them, both in terms of resources, financial or otherwise, but also in terms of how you can use your platform to lift them up? This is crucial. We need to listen to people who are most impacted, period. We need to listen to the black activists who are at the forefront of this change or the indigenous groups who are at the forefront. When we think about how to go about this social change, the community is disproportionately targeted by police violence, included black and indigenous communities, should be the voices at the front and center. 
This probably sounds straightforward, but it is very often the case that white people can overtake the conversation about what they believe to be best, disagreeing with the method of protest or the scope of change. We have to listen to inform our own responses. And by the way, I include myself here. I'm doing my best. I don't know if this is exactly the right way. This is my contribution, but I think there's a lot of other people you want to follow to to really understand it in a lot more depth than what you're going to find in this podcast. So there's a number of people in Canada we can look to such figures as uh, journalist Desmond Cole, author Robin Maynard. In the U.S., we can look to founders of Black Lives Matter, Patrice Cullars, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and many, many others. I will also include the sh- in the show notes an article uh, that's, that is 75 Things White People Can Do for Racial Justice. And again, there's a lot of great information there. Another organization that I really like is called Eight Can't Wait. And they have shown that if you can embed eight specific policies, such as banning chokeholds, um, requiring de-escalation, require warning before shooting, and exhaust all other means before shooting. There's eight of them. That police violence will go down by 72%. Let me say that again. This is called Eight Can't Wait. Go to their website. But there are eight policies that if you implement, violence goes down by 72%. And by the way, this is something that I'm personally exploring right now is that reform might not be enough. Do police need to play as central a role in the many duties they now do in society. There is a good argument that there are a number of roles that other individuals and groups can play that is less militarized, less costly, and can have better outcomes. So, again, this is, I think, what you and I want to explore. There's a lot here, isn't there? Tune in now to your body. How do you feel right now? Do you feel charged up? Do you feel motivated to take some action? I really hope so. Standing tall, feeling your belly rise and fall. I want to finish with a moving story about a museum program told by social justice activist and lawyer Brian Stevenson. He's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and author of the book Just Mercy. I first heard this story that he told via Tara Brock. So Brian Stevenson told the story in this way. He said, we've had people go to lynching sites. And if you're not familiar As an aside, if you're not familiar with what lynching is, because some people have asked me that in the past, it's when a mob kills someone, especially by hanging, for an alleged offense with or without a legal trial. So back to Stevenson. We've had people go to lynching sites, and we have them collect soil from the lynching site and put it in a jar and bring it to our museum. We have hundreds of these jars of soil that were collected from lynching sites, and we have the name of the lynching victim on the jars. And we have the date of the lynching. And it's been really powerful to give people an opportunity to do something tangible, to do something redemptive, to do something restorative. 
And people come and they go to these places. We give them a memo, a piece of paper to describe everything and they and to describe the story and they of the person and they find it really powerful. We had a middle-aged black woman come to one of our events and she was really nervous about going to the lynching site by herself. But she was fired up and we gave her the jar, we gave her the memo and off she went. And she went to a pretty remote area and she got pretty nervous, but she decided to carry on. And when she went to the place where the lynching took place, she was about to start digging when a truck drove by. And there was this white man on the truck who slowed down and stared at her. And then she said the truck stopped and turned around and drove back, and the man stared at her some more. And then it stopped, and then this big white guy got out and started walking towards her, and she was very nervous. Now, we tell people you don't have to explain what you're doing. You're just getting dirt for your garden. Feel free to say, free, feel free to say that. And that's what she intended to do. But when this white man walked up to her and he said, what are you doing? She said, something got hold of me. And I turned to the man. I said, I'm digging soil because this is where a black man was lynched in 1931 and I'm going to honor his life. And then the man stood there and said, does that paper talk about the lynching? And she said, yes, it does. And he said, can I read it? She gave the man the paper, and he stood there reading while she was digging. And then he put the paper down and stunned her by asking, would it be okay if I helped you? And then she told me this white man got on his knees and he started throwing his hands into the soil with such force, and his hands are getting coated with black soil. They were turning black, and he was putting the soil into the jar. And he kept throwing his hands, and he moved it, all that soil. And the next thing she knew, she, she had tears running down her face. And he stopped and said, Oh, I'm sorry. Am, am I upsetting you? And she said, No, no, you're, you're blessing me. And they kept together putting soil in the jar. And they got the jar almost full. And she noticed towards the end that the man was slowing down and his shoulders were shaking. And she turned and she looked and she saw the man had tears running down his face. And she stopped. And she put her hand on the man's shoulder and she said, Are, are you all right? And that's when the man said to her, No, no, I'm just so worried that this might have been my grandparents that were involved in lynching this man. And she said they both sat there with tears running down their face. At the end of it, he stood up and said, I want to take a picture of you holding the jar. And she said, I want to take a picture of you holding the jar. And they both took pictures. And she brought this man back and they put that jar on the exhibit in the museum together. Now, beautiful things like that don't always happen when you tell the truth about history, when you try to actually look for redemption and restoration, when you have every reason to be afraid and angry that until we commit to some acts like that, until we tell the truth, we deny ourselves the beauty of redemption 
the beauty of restoration. What a story. Feeling our breath come in and go out. Thinking about the role we can play, the actions we can take, the conversations we can engage in. Yes, it might be scary, but if we all do a little bit, just one thing each, out of everything I've talked about this week, there's a chance, there's a chance that we can make real change happen. So bringing this energy into the day, feeling our belly rise and fall. Have a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.